tells us about his will for our life according to that book of the Bible. And we're taking on the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a longer book. It'll take all of this year for us to get through this. But man, there's some great, great things along the way. And in chapter number one already, we've spent a few weeks and, and we've been learning some things about foolishness and wisdom and contentions and unity already. And, and today we're going to jump into something that I'm titling The Battle for Control. And I want you to understand that we are absolutely in a war. Um, the war that we are in is much harder than the war on terror or Islamic extremism or pick your favorite battle that maybe you think you're dealing with because this war is a war for your soul. And you need to understand that it doesn't stop just because you get saved. Because it's a war between the flesh and the Spirit. Just listen and follow along on the screen. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 7 to start the stage and set the stage, excuse me, starting in verse 18. Paul says this, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. If I do, now if I do that I would not, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, and here it is, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Keep that thought in mind. We'll revisit that later which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The battle for control is going on every single minute of your life. That's the real battle. You may think that your current set of circumstances is the battle. You may think that the contentions that you're having and the strife that you're having and the fightings that you're dealing with and the arguments and the disagreements that you're going through, you may think that is the real battle. But I'm here to tell you that all that is just a covering for the real battle disguised behind the scenes that your fleshly, sinful nature is warring against the Holy Spirit of God to take control of your soul and drive you deeper into sin. That's the battle. And friends, if we can learn to win this battle, don't you know that all the other battles are already won? Because God is the one who's going to fight them for you. So if we can get control of this thing, if we can surrender it to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and not give place to the flesh, then all of the other circumstances, which will continue, by the way, you'll make the right choices, you'll make the right decisions, and the Lord will be by your side helping you every step of the way. So continuing from the idea of last week, we ended in verse 25. 
where it says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That's, that's kind of where we left off. We're continuing today, starting in verse 26, and then going to the end of chapter number 1. Please follow along. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Why is that? That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that according as it is written he that glorieth let him glory in the lord it's this passage is all about the flesh versus the spirit so let's pray and ask god to guide us by his spirit through our bible study heavenly fathers we come before you and your word we would just ask you Come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we surrender the control of our lives. We empty ourselves of ourselves. Holy Spirit, come, fill us, be our teacher, be our guide. Open our eyes of understanding. Help us to see exactly what you need for us to see. And Lord, through it all, give us the understanding and therefore the strength to be able to decide that we will surrender it all to you. We will not give place to the flesh. We will understand where the battle comes from, and we will make decisions on purpose to follow your word and your Holy Spirit. God, change us, I pray. Every one of us struggles with this every single day. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Three main points that we'll see. The first one is this, the calling of Christians. The calling of Christians. It starts right out in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren... Now, I want to point out that it says brethren, because people are often confused about this idea of God's calling. So the audience are people who are already saved. And he says, you see your calling, brethren. He's writing to people who are already saved. So this is not a call to salvation, as John Calvin might have taught. Uh, This is a calling that is given to people who are already saved. In fact, for you Bible students out there, you want to get everything in context, And the context of the calling is going to take you back to chapter 1 and verse number 9, where verse number 9 says that you are called unto the fellowship of his son. That's the calling that he's talking about. So literally, your calling, if we take that word as it's translated most of the time in your New Testament as calling, there is another time it's translated differently, and it really gives us the idea of what he means when he uses this word calling. And that word is vocation. Your calling is your vocation as a Christian. And that's where we, what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1, where the exact same word is translated vocation. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy, Christian, of the vocation wherewith you are called. You see that? God has called you after salvation to do something. He's called you to get a job done. He's called you to serve him. He's called you to do what he has called you to do. We see it expressed this way in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. Well, giving diligence, that's, that's work, isn't it? 
Isn't that your vocation? Isn't that something you're going to put effort towards? Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. You don't give diligence to do the calling. You give diligence to make sure that you confirm it. God has placed a calling on your life to get a job done for Him. You need to do the job so that you can confirm the fact that His calling and election is absolutely sure. Because if you do these things, man, what a promise. You'll never fall. Anybody want that? I don't ever want to fall again. Well, all you got to do is do your diligence to make your calling sure. This is the call. He says, so, for you see your calling. You see it? You see your calling. In other words, your calling gives you purpose. Because once you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your life is not over and your problems are not over. But God gives you purpose in life. And the purpose for your life, brothers and sisters, is to do the work He's called you to do. It's your new vocation in Christ. You have a vocation to provide for your family. Praise God for that. You have a vocation in Christ to be an evangelist, to have the ministry of reconciliation, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You have a job to do in the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ and members in particular. Some of you are a hand, some of you an eye, some of you are a nose, some of you are an ear, some of you are a foot. Do your job, member. That's what God is calling us to do. It's our calling and it gives us purpose. So if I know my calling and if I know my purpose, then I have meaning in my life to be able to move forward. And wouldn't it be cool if everything just worked out great like that? But it doesn't work out great like that, does it? We have a problem, don't we? Because he goes on in that verse and he says, you see your calling that, oh, by the way, notice, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So he's going to say, hey, Christian, while you're out trying to fulfill your calling and give diligence to make it sure, you know what you're going to notice? Not many people who are wise according to the flesh. That would be higher education. That would be, that would be your PhDs, for example. Just an, just an illustration. Uh, people who are wise after the flesh, you look around the body of Christ and you know what you're going to see? Not a ton of those guys getting it done. And then it says not many mighty. Not many mighty, those are the people who are powerful in different ways. One of the ways that that word mighty is translated in other places is the word, very interesting, possible. They're the guys that get it done. But the guys who are mighty after the flesh, they're not always the ones who are getting it done for the Lord. That's what you're going to notice. Uh, not many noble. Well, you know what nobility really, you know what the definition of nobility really is? It's being well-born. We think of nobility as royalty. We think of nobility as the king's child is born into the noble family, right? And so it, they're privileged. So he says, you're not going to see many PhDs, you're not going to see many powerful, and you're not going to see many privileged fulfilling their calling in their life. You're not going to see many. That's just the way it, it's a problem. It's a real problem. So he's saying, if you look around, man, it's just not that way. Now, to be clear, to be clear, he does not say 
you'll notice there are not any. He doesn't say there aren't any. He says there's not many. So thank God for the M. Because some of you may be highly educated in leveraging it for God's glory. Some of you may be highly uh, influential and able to get things done and you leverage it for the Lord. Some of you may have been born into privilege and you leverage it for God's glory. But you're the minority. You're the minority. That's what God said. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I think it's because people who find themselves with those kinds of advantages in life, they've worked really hard to get there. They find themselves in a position where other people serve them at some level, work for them or subordinate to them. And, you know, for them to submit to God, to God's word, God forbid, to other Christians, that's yeah, just not really on the agenda. That's not just really something that interests me. I mean, I'm, I'm used to kind of being in charge, and the idea of getting down and serving, you know, that's kind of, that's for others. So before we go any further with that, let me, let me just do a quick review of what it means to be called and chosen. This is something that was frequently misunderstood in the Scriptures, and it's really not that hard to understand, but let me just say it's got a couple of applications like a lot of things do in the Bible. First of all, God calls, when He calls out, He calls to all men. So He calls in the context of salvation, God calls all human beings to be saved. But He chooses only those that respond to the gospel. Right? Makes perfect sense. So we have a complete free will. God is not a respecter of persons. He did not elect a minority of people to heaven and the majority to destruction. He did not do that. God gave us, every one of us, the chance, and he calls out to all of us that we would be saved. And when you decided, yes, I want that, God said, good, I'll take you. He would refuse no one. He chooses everyone that responds. Once you have responded to that and you are a child of God in his family, then he calls out to all Christians to serve him, but he only chooses to use those that actually submit to him and his word. So you can be a Christian, and you can have your ticket punched, and you could have eternal security, and your home is secure in heaven, but if you're not submissive to God and to his word, he'll never choose to actually use you, and that's a problem. So you have a calling on your life. It's your vocation. And you know what that is? It's to make the most of your circumstances, whatever they may be, for God's glory. If you find yourself high or low on the scale of society or economy or privilege or power, whatever it might be, your job before the Lord is to take whatever He's given you and just use it for His glory. That's what He wants for you to do. Are you, you, would you say of yourself that you're highly educated, you're powerful, you're privileged? I'm not. And you know what? Praise the Lord, because He can do that. Most people recognize that they're not elite, and most people would recognize that because they're not elite, that often life isn't fair to them. We do see in this human life that the privileged, well, they use that word for a reason. They get privileges. And sometimes we think that's not fair. But I want you to remember this, and this is in your notes. God is the great leveler of life. He leverages your current position and lowers the prideful of this world. That's verse 27. 
Romans 11.29 says this, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The gifts of God would include who you are, how he made you, yes, spiritual gifts, but also your circumstances. God has gifted you and placed you where he has placed you. And he's put a calling on your life that now we understand it's your vocation. And he says those are without repentance. In other words, you know what? God doesn't make no junk. And he doesn't make no mistakes. He's put you there for a reason, man. And you know what it says in verse 27? That he chose the foolish. He chose the foolish. And people like me say, hallelujah. The uneducated after the flesh. Uh, That would be Peter, James, and John. Village fishermen. He chose the weak. Uh, That would be the uninfluential. Um, There was a prophet named Amos in the Old Testament that says, I'm not a prophet, I've never been a prophet's son, but I'm a gatherer of sycamore fruits. (laughs) And the Lord just called me one day and said, go out and tell people what I said. And he said, okay, I'll do it. There's nothing special about me. And the base, base, the unrefined. Well, that's the Apostle Paul, if you've ever met one. The Apostle Paul is constantly accused of speaking bluntly, speaking uh, uh, roughly towards people. They always didn't, they didn't like the way he talked. They would consider him base. And the despised, and those that are not, they're nothing in this world's eyes. They're, they're undesirables. That's who they are. Like Matthew, the tax collector, or Zacchaeus, some of the most despised and hated people in society, the most corrupt, lying tax thieves that existed back then. But God touched them, and he used them. So not only does your calling give you purpose, your calling strips their pride. It strips their pride because it gives us the expressed purpose, right? The reason why God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised is to confound and to bring to nothing those that think they're something. It's to strip them of their pride. It's to teach them a lesson. It's to confuse their logic. They think we worked hard. We got this stuff. We're on top of the heap. We, we rule the world. We're in charge. And he's like, oh, really? Well, let me show you who I'll use. And God takes simple folks, just like me and you, and he turns this world upside down because we'll trust him. And he takes, think about that list, y'all, foolish, despised, base, weak, picking sides for a football team. You're not picking those guys. God says, I'll take them all. I'll take them all. And we'll change this world. He does a face job to all these people who think there's something in this world today. He brings them down a notch, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 6. This is interesting. He says, you know what? You need to learn. And he says that you might learn in us, in fact, not to think of men above that which is written. Not to think of men above that which is written. 
Well, you could take that to mean a few different things. You might think that don't think of men more than you think of the Scriptures. Well, that's true. But why don't you consider it this way? Don't think of men more highly than the Scriptures think of them. Don't think of men more highly than the Scriptures reveal to us that we really are. Because if you do, then you fall into the danger of the rest of the verse. That no one of you be puffed up for one against another. And so we see all the things going on in life, and we see all the struggles and all the people, and we say, yeah, but you're dumb, and you're wrong, and you're foolish, and you're this, and I got it going on, and you just need to listen to me, and I'm puffed up against you now. I think I'm right, and I'm full of pride. And remember, we saw a couple of weeks ago that only by pride comes contention. Only by pride. The fight is not the circumstance. The fight is what's inside of you. The fight is the flesh fighting for control of your soul. That's what it's all about. God does that. He wants to bring them down. And he wants them to realize, I can do anything I want with anyone I choose. I don't need your abilities. The only ability you need to have for God to use you is that thing called availability. That's the only ability you need. Make yourself available to God and God will use you. And that's what he's trying to tell us. He chooses those who make themselves available. He chooses those who exercise faith. He chooses those. It's the only requirement. That's your calling. The next thing we're going to see in verse 29 is the source of the struggle. And that's verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So we all have this struggle, don't we? We all struggle with the problem of the flesh. I mean, if the Apostle Paul, with all of his maturity and walking in the Spirit, wrote what he wrote, what we read at the beginning in Romans chapter 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do those. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. What is wrong with me? Oh, wretched man that I am. If Paul struggled with it, y'all... <laughs> We're going to struggle with it. I mean, you can count on it. The source of the struggle is absolutely the flesh. It's evil, and it's in all of us. And if you can understand why and how that works in you, well, then maybe, just maybe, you can conquer it more and more frequently in your life. So we saw verses 26 to 28, how God uses people who are nothing to do something significant for him. And he does it so that all of their fleshly achievements have no room to glory in his presence. So now we're going to define the word glory. And the way we can define the word glory and how it's used in other places is simply the word to boast. To glory is to boast. Sometimes also rejoice. Okay? So you may say that no flesh should boast in his presence. That's what we see in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 in the context of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Man, how terrible would heaven be if we got there based on our merit? And people then started telling stories about, you know, this guy just barely snuck in, but me, man, they rolled out the red carpet because you have no idea the stuff I did, man. And then you're just like, heaven's a lot like earth. 
No, God says, you couldn't possibly do it anyway. Because I did all the work, there's no room for you to brag about nothing. It's the same context we see in Romans 3 and 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jump down to verse 27. Where's the boasting then? Well, it's excluded. It's excluded. Because God did all the work. Whenever God does all the work, we can't boast. We've got nothing to say. And when you finally realize that all your life in Christ after salvation, if you have ever done anything worthwhile, if you've done anything worthy of reward, if you've done anything that has lasted forever in seeing people saved and disciples made, you understand you didn't do it anyway. The Lord did it. You sure didn't do it in the power of your flesh. It's never going to boast in His presence. You didn't do it anyway. The Spirit in you did it if it ever happened. So where's boasting? Well, it's excluded. No flesh should glory in His presence. Okay, so let's, let's get a little running history. And in your notes, I have the history of man and his flesh. Quick little summary of the Bible, okay, in the context of this subject. First thing, as created. God created man perfect, sinless. He was naked, but he was not ashamed. He had no knowledge of good or evil. He was just perfectly existing as God intended. He's working in a perfect environment with a perfect wife, the only woman in the world for him. So as created, man is the image of God. He's a perfect trinity. That's who he is. He's body, soul, and spirit. And each element is perfect before God, designed to commune with God. And that's what happened. We see in Genesis 3.8. God came down. Yes, this actually happened after sin, but like God always came down, and he just wanted to hang out with Adam and Eve. Came down to the garden in the cool of the day and wanted to hang out. They ran and hid because now sin entered, and they were ashamed. But they only had one command, right? Don't eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the command in Genesis 2. But they did eat it. And so sin enters the human race. So number two, after sin, sin enters and man is now sinful. He loses the image of God. Of course he loses the image of God because God has no sin. And man has a sinful nature. Back in Genesis 2.17, it says, In the day that thou eatest thereof, right, you'll surely die. In the day. So they ate of it, but that very day, did they die? Physically, no, didn't they not? I mean, Adam lived 930 years. They didn't die that day, not physically, but they died spiritually. They died that day. That day, the Spirit of God that was in them left them, and they were left with a dead human spirit. That's all that was left. This spiritual death, it's a real thing. It's called the second death in Revelation 21 and verse number 8. It's equated with a place that's a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. It's the ultimate separation from God in eternity. They died spiritually. They lose God's image. They lose his spirit. And now man is a two-part being. Man is no longer a trinity. He's just a dichotomy. There's only two parts. 
There's a body and there's a soul. There is no spirit. The spirit is dead. And so the body is the flesh. The spirit is gone. And so what you'll find, if you study the Old Testament, you'll find that there are no human beings in the Old Testament that are called sons of God until Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shows up and offers to us to be sons of God when we believe on Him. But the references, all of them, in your Old Testament to sons of God are not men. They're angels every time. Mark it down. Because we are not connected to God anymore. Sin has entered the picture. And sin resides in the flesh. We read that in Romans 7. We see it in Romans 8 and verse 8. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Whatever you do in your flesh is automatically disqualified from pleasing God. And sin is passed down to all men, and that's Romans 5.12. As by one man sin entered the world, that one man is Adam, and death by sin, because the wages of sin is death. So death passed upon all men. Now we all know that we have a life cycle. We all know that after 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years, the physical life is going to end. Why? Because all have sinned. We've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death, and death is passed on to all men because we inherited the very sin nature. So as created, you're perfect in the image of God, but after sin, you're missing something. So what we need is a Savior, amen? We need somebody to help us. So enter Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, dies on the cross, He takes our sin for us. And if you're smart enough to respond to that, you get the free gift of eternal life, and then we get point number three, after salvation. Well, what's our condition after salvation? Well, when you receive Christ as your Savior, you're what the Bible calls born again. You're born again. Your spirit that was dead, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1, is now quickened or made alive when you receive Christ. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart and your life and gives life to your previously dead human spirit. And it is a birth. It is a spiritual birth. It is a new birth. You are a new creature. You're now made alive. So man's condition after salvation, before the rapture, man is an imperfect trinity. You're back to being a trinity. You have three parts, but it's an imperfect trinity. Why? Because you still have the flesh. And the flesh has its sinful nature. And your life, Christian, and that's most of you, your life in Christ is a constant struggle of flesh, versus spirit that's the battle for control so therefore god warns us over and over and over and over in the new testament walk in the spirit don't walk in the flesh put on the new man christ put off the old man adam die to yourself we get these commands over and over and over again because we, we constantly have this battle so every single one of us that knows Christ as our Savior, we have this thing going on inside of us. It's a real battle. It's a real struggle. We have our flesh, which is the, the lodging place of the sinful nature that 100% of the time draws us to sin. And we have the Holy Spirit of God in us now that 100% of the time draws us to righteousness. And the real you is the soul. It's what's in the middle. It's the decision maker. It's your mind. It's your will. And you decide what you will do. Will you listen to the flesh today? Or will you listen to the Spirit? 
because that's the battle. Kids know the, the, the old cartoons with the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder and they're whispering in your ears, do this, no, do this. That's kind of the Christian life. And you're in the middle and you have the opportunity to decide every second of every minute of every day. You could have done great a minute ago and there's coming another one next minute. That's just the way it is. But there's a fourth state because it's not over until it's over and the last one is after glorification. After glorification, that's it says that no flesh shall glory where? In his presence. In his presence. Well, one day we're going to be in his presence. We're going to be glorified, right? We die physically. We leave this body of flesh behind. Hallelujah. I mean, the upside of death for a Christian, y'all, is seriously shed the flesh. Live forever with him, man. And he gives you new flesh. He gives you a new body. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 says, right? He starts with an illustration in verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's a flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. Okay, there's a physical illustration. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. So we have heavenly, we have earthly. But the glory of the celestial is one. And the glory of the terrestrial, well, that's another. They're different. Then he makes the application in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. Don't be deceived. Oh, and there is a spiritual body. Don't be deceived. There is a new body. And when that day comes, y'all, the battle will be over. The ba that's when the battle's done. That's when the time of shouting is. That's when the time we can get excited because you will have new flesh that will have no sin nature. So now you've got the Holy Spirit always telling you to do what's right, and you've got new flesh always telling you to do what's right. And you're in the middle like, I think I'll do what's right. That's heaven. That's glory. I don't care if your picture of heaven is a little cabin with a hunting dog and a couple of guns. I don't care if your picture of heaven is a nice golf course. I don't care what your picture of heaven is. Real heaven is no more flesh. That's what it is. No more devil, no more tears, no more death. That's heaven, y'all. Picture it how you want. By the way, the cabin and glory, that wood, hay, and stubble's burnt. That's not happening. So anyway, okay. All right, number three. We're not there yet, right? So, so we still got to fight. We're, we're still, I mean, we're still in this thing. So how are we going to get the victory? And here's where we're ending up. Don't check out on me. Number three, the blueprint of boasting. Okay? Sounds weird. Hang with me. Remember the definition of glory? Glory means to boast, right? Verse 31, he that glorieth, we understand what it means, let him glory in the Lord. But before we get to verse 31, go back to verse number 30. Because here's in your notes. In Christ, you are now all the things that in the flesh you're not. In Christ, you have been made all of those things that in the flesh probably you're not. That's what he's done for you. Listen, do you love the Word of God? Say amen. You love the Word of God. You know, what? you know what? You know what happens when you love the very words of God? 
Do you know that God gives you a higher IQ? Do you believe that? Well, that's what the Bible says in Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients. Why? Because I keep thy precepts. In Christ, he makes you now all the things that maybe you never had the opportunity to achieve in the flesh. What about your spiritual weapons? You know what they are? They're mighty, the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 3, For we walk in the flesh. We can't escape the flesh. We're stuck. It says, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but you know what they are? They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And boy, isn't that everywhere. And you know what it does? Here's how it works. Pay attention. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know how you get your victory? You know how you cast down the strongholds? You know how you're mighty through God to casting those things down? Do you know how you're going to win this warfare? Not by using carnal weapons. Carnal, fleshly. No. You're going to win this warfare not because you're smarter than the other guy. Not because you got better friends than the other person. Not because you have more money and can hire better lawyers than the other guy. You're not winning it that way. Not in the Lord's game. You're winning it through the Spirit. And by bringing every single thought that rolls around your head captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. You want some homework for the rest of your life? Go do that. Go do that. Because you may go home this afternoon and be challenged with something and you'll surrender and do great and honor the Lord and bring your thoughts captive to be not just know but obey what Jesus Christ says. But then, just before you go to bed, another thought will pop in, (laughs) and you'll just run with it because it's kind of fun. And it's not captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the battle. Oh, our lineage, our lineage now, being (laughs) well-born, you're born again, y'all. I mean, you're, you're children of the Most High King. You have never been more privileged than you can be privileged being born into God's family. Christ makes you all of the things that you may not be otherwise. Praise the Lord for that. Man. So, do you realize that all that happens, not because of what you did, but because of what God did in you. It's what God made you to be, but not after the flesh. See, it's after the Spirit. You're undeserving. God did the work, amen? He's the one who did it. Therefore, you know what we're going to do? You know how we're going to get victory? We're going to give credit to who credit's due. That's what we're going to do. Right? Isn't that what Romans 13, 7 says? Give everybody their dues. 
right? Tribute to whom tribute, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I don't think God would be upset if we just said credit to whom credit. That's like honor to whom honor, isn't it? Let's give credit to whom credit is due. God is the one who is deserving of all the glory. God is the one that we should do all our boasting on. You want a blueprint for victory in your life in Christ? Make much of the Lord. Brag on Him. Forget about you. You and I, we are nothing. He's everything. He's all that matters. The psalmist understood it. Psalm 34, 2, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. And if you'll do that, you know what? The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. You go off and you present yourself such that the world thinks you're a fool. You're bragging on Jesus all the time. People say, hey, what do you know? You go to work tomorrow. Somebody will say, hey, what do you know? You say, I know Jesus. They'll think, well, he's a weirdo. (laughs) But you know what? Somebody might be standing there and it says, the humble. The humble shall hear thereof. And he'll be like, you know, he'd be glad. Psalm 44, 8, In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. Selah. That's what we need to do. Verse 31 is the blueprint, man, for all the believers as they live their lives today until the rapture. So paraphrase it this way. He that boasteth, let him boast in the Lord. That's what he's trying to communicate to you. Listen, I didn't grow up a Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up with the Bible. My father was a hard-working, blue-collar maintenance man who had good common sense and taught us to be honest. And he taught me one thing I'll never forget. My dad died over 30 years ago. He taught me this. He said, son, beware of people who are always the heroes of their own stories. Pretty good wisdom. Pretty good wisdom for a guy who wasn't in the Word of God. I'm going to tell you something. You want some good advice? Beware of people who are always the heroes in their own stories. Just watch out. Just watch out. Because God says, if you're going to boast, man, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Because it's not about you, man. Anything good that you've got going on came from Him. That's what James 1.17 says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? It's from above. It cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So as a result, how should we respond? This is how we should respond like John the Baptist responded in John chapter 3 and verse 30. He must increase. I must decrease. I'm nothing. I'm going to get out of the way. Let him do whatever he needs to do. John is expressing the same thing Paul is expressing. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So the last thing I want you to remember is this, and we'll be done. The flesh is subtle. Why? Because it's a tool of the devil, and the devil is subtle. The flesh doesn't care what you do as long as it's in control. So you don't have to be the typical depraved sinner who's out doing evil things that anyone in society would recognize as evil. You don't have to be, you know, somebody who's doing illegal activities and 
hurting other people and stealing and cheating. and You don't have to be that guy, okay? You could be a good guy. You could live a moral life. You could have a solid job. You could have a good marriage and take care of your family. You could come to church. You can read the Bible. You can serve in ministry. You can give money to charities. You can do a lot of wonderful things, and the devil does not care. The flesh does not care if you do all those things as long as the flesh is in control of you doing it. The flesh will let you read your Bible. The flesh will let you come to church. As long as you let the flesh call the shots. Flesh ain't scared of church. <laughs> they scared of the Lord. So I think it's God's, I mean, I think this is cool. God's joke <laughs> on the high and mighty of this world is that he'll use somebody like me. Or like you. Hallelujah. Who are we? Nothing. I am one of those that fits in the category and those that are not. (laughs) And the Lord says, hey, there's a big nobody. Watch this. Let's confound some people who think they're something. Let's just make their head spin a little. And that's what he does. He, puts it, he rubs it in their face. So, if you find yourself, according to this world's viewpoint, to be uneducated, uninfluential, unrefined, or undesirable, good news, man, you qualify. Now, you don't have to be those things. You may have privilege. You may have some authority. You may have some opportunities. You may have gotten a high education. Don't trust in those things. Just make yourself available. That's all he wants. Submit to him. Brag about Jesus all the day long. Think of it this way. Man is who he is on planet Earth. God's view of man, if we can picture looking down from the heavens onto Earth, one speck of one planet in the galaxies of planets, God's view of man from on high is that man man appears to be very, very small. But if you took the viewpoint, say, of the serpent on the ground, looking up at man, man is big. Man is a great big deal. The viewpoint of the serpent makes much of man. The viewpoint of God makes little of man. Go with God's viewpoint. You'll be a lot better off if you go with God's viewpoint. The circumstances of your life, the struggles you go through today, the ones you went through yesterday, the ones that are waiting for you tomorrow, that's not the real battle. The real battle, the battlefield that you've got to worry about is about nine inches wide, right there. It's between your ears. You win that one, the other ones are won. The other ones are taken care of. I promise you, that's how it works. But here's the real question before we just amen, hallelujah, get out of here. 
Will you, are you willing, are you willing to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ? Every thought. That's a high standard. But if you want God to use you, you'll do it. You don't have to have the human qualifications because it is his work. It's called the work of the Lord, done by his Holy Spirit through you. Let me ask you a question. Have you surrendered to him everything that you are, everything that you know about you, have you surrendered it to him in the area of salvation? Or are you trying to do more? Are you trying to make yourself better so that when you reach some level of better, you'll feel worthy to ask God to forgive you? Don't do that. It doesn't work that way. You'll never be good enough. Stop trying. Just surrender. Let him take control of your life. And today can be that day. But if you've already surrendered your soul and eternity to the Lord Jesus Christ and you know that you're saved, well, the question is similar. Are you willing to let every thought be brought into the obedience of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to surrender the control of your day-to-day, minute-to-minute decision-making? Are you willing to get into the Word of God and understand His will and live virtuously? Are you willing to take these steps and say, Lord, I don't understand it all, but if you'll show me, I'll just do it. I don't get a vote. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm with you. Because you can be saved, but you can be miserable. You can be saved, but you can be frustrated. You can be saved, but you can still be fighting, right? So you're better off just agreeing with God and surrender the control to the Holy Spirit. Let Him take you. Let Him change you. Let Him win the battle. And wherever it takes you, it's going to be better than wherever you're at now. You believe that? Because He's the Lord. Let's pray together.